Hello out there in podcast listening world. Uh, welcome to Queers Do Cinema. My name is Sam Berliner, and I'm one of the hosts of our podcast, and I'm super excited to MC this week. First week MCing. Woo, it's exciting. <laughs> um, so first off, we'll just go around um, and say the names of the folks who are on the, the podcast, usually the hosts, we'll go around and introduce ourselves, and then I'll introduce our episode and our guest. So my name is Sam. Um, I use he and they pronouns. I was the festival director for Translations, the Seattle Transgender Film Festival, for seven years, um, and I'm currently a um, programmer for Frameline, programming the trans and non-binary content. And I'm sorry if you can hear that sound. That's the puppy. He's discovered a loud toy. This is bad timing for a loud toy. Is, can you hear anything? No. Great. Okay. Um, <laughs> and I'm also a filmmaker uh, and a whole lot of other things. Okay. Hey, Kathleen, would you like to introduce yourself? Oh, never mind. Hey, Jeffrey, would you like to introduce yourself? <laughs> Jeffrey Winter, co-executive director of the Film Collaborative, um, based here in Los Angeles. Um, I'm really excited to be part of this conversation because over the years we have developed into, for reasons I'm not exactly sure of, that I would love to get into because it has something to do with commerciality and it has something to do with my own particular interests. Um, we developed it into a major distributor of trans-themed film, so I have lots of context and stuff to talk about. Next. James. Uh, uh, I am James Zado. I am the head of the Queer Film Institute, which produces Wicked Queer, the Boston LGBTQ plus film festival and WQ Docs, which is our new documentary festival that we've recently started last year. Uh, I also teach film history at MIT and Leslie College of Art and Design. And I guess we have to wait for we'll Kathleen come to come back. back. We'll come back to Kathleen. <laughs> Kathleen has run away. There was also a dog uh, in her <laughs> screen, so it's fine. Um, okay, so I'm going to do a, an intro for our episode. I'm just so excited to release this episode in conjunction with TDOV, the International Transgender Day of Visibility. Um, and this year that falls on March 31st. And for those who don't know, the Trans Day of Visibility is an annual awareness day celebrated around the world that's dedicated to celebrating the accomplishments of transgender and gender nonconforming people while raising, while raising awareness of the work that still needs to be done to achieve trans justice. And of course, we here at Queers Do Cinema intimately understand uh, the importance of visibility specifically through film um, and the power of seeing ourselves as LGBTQ plus people uh, reflected on screen. So in honor of the holiday, and also because he's awesome, we're super excited to have a guest on our podcast today, Chase Joint. So I'm just going to read his bio, and um, <laughs> no, I'm going to pause. <laughs> sorry, sorry, Jared. I'm going to pause. Hey, Kathleen, would you like to introduce yourself? Hello, my name is Kathleen Mullen. My pronouns are she and her. I'm the festival director of the Seattle Queer Film Festival pretty much since 2014. I also um, I do programming for the Vancouver Latin American Film Festival. Um, I do a queer picks programmer 
uh, career picks program and uh, just a, a lover of queer cinema for many, many years. Awesome. Thanks, Kathleen. Okay, then we can edit this back into order. Okay, so I'm gonna uh, let you know about Chase uh, officially this way. So Chase Joint is a director and writer whose films have won jury and audience awards internationally. His debut documentary feature, Framing Agnes, was named a best movie of the year by The New Yorker after premiering at the Sundance Film Festival where it won the next Innovator Award and the next Audience Award. With Ashling Chin Yi, Chase co-directed No Ordinary Man, a feature-length documentary about jazz musician Billy Tipton, which was presented at Con Docs 2020 as part of the Canadian Showcase of Docs in Progress. Since premiering at the Toronto International Film Festival in 2020, No Ordinary Man has been hailed by the has been hailed by the New Yorker as a genre unto itself and IndieWire as the future of trans cinema. The film has won nine awards on the international festival circuit, including being named to TIFF's, TIFF Canada's top 10. And on a personal note, I'm a giant fan of Chase's work. Um, and for many years and throughout my time at Translations, I programmed his films and I would always be excited to check in and be like, hey, what you working on these days? But we never actually met until today. So you podcast listeners are very lucky to witness this moment or listen to this moment. Anyway, please join me in welcoming Chase to the podcast. Hi, Chase. Hello, hello. So happy to be here. Welcome. Thank you. General excitement. <laughs> That's what I put in my notes. I thought that was so funny. Um, beautiful. Uh, is there anything you want to say right off the bat or should I keep on going with the, the order of stuff? Oh, I'm so thrilled to be invited into the conversation. And I was saying before we started recording that any chance to be in dialogue with queer and trans cinema geeks is such a welcome opportunity. And I, I look forward to learning from you all as well. And vice versa, of course. Yeah, that's awesome. So uh, my plan for the podcast today, once I calm down from this overarching excitement and try to focus, um, is two main discussion uh, topics. One big topic is the concept of traditional trans cinema versus the trans new wave. And I'll, I'll go into that in a little bit. And the other is kind of like the evolution of the form of documentary. Uh, I have a feeling that'll give us plenty to chat about. Um, of course, we want to talk about Chase's features, though he has a number of short films that I've seen over the years as well. Uh, the features, as I said in the bio, Framing Agnes and No Ordinary Man. Um, and also, you know, what other trans cinema is being made that's exciting us these days and what we're taking inspiration from and all of that. So. That's the plan. Plus, of course, there are a lot of smart people on this call who I'm sure have plenty of things to say. Um, so this was just my uh, my try at making some kind of format for today's chat. Um, so yeah, first off, I figured we'd do the traditional trans cinema versus trans new wave. Um, so, oh yes, Jeffrey. Well, that's just where I thought I might start with because I have been... Yeah. I've been being in the position of distributing trans cinema for about 20 years now. And 
it the changes over the last 20 years are probably the most dramatic that I've seen in the industry at large. Um, what I would say is that all of us who are programmers of film festivals, Sam's a little younger than the rest of us, but um, remember the days when there would be one trans film a year. <laughs> okay, that was the one that we all had to focus on. There would be some others that weren't very good, right? But there would be one that would emerge. And there was a lot of reasons why it was just one. Like, first of all, in the LGBT space, it was always seen that trans is the smallest audience of the four. Um, therefore, there was the most limited number of tickets you could sell. And then also, um, so yeah, it was hardest to sell, but also they were all sort of essentially about one thing, which was all about surgery and transition. And they were very medicalized and they were very, and so we would deal a lot with this idea of trans 101. Here's another explaining the trans medicalization process. And, you know, so it was it was actually a huge conversation that would constantly happen. Uh oh, what are we going to do? We got three this year. <laughs> Only one can win. Um, and it was very frustrating. And I always had in the back of my mind that there was a few deeply limiting crazy things going on there, because one thing that I think is interesting about trans cinema, as opposed to just say like gay male cinema, um, is that trans cinema in its in its essence has actually a lar a better opportunity to cross over to all types. In some ways, trans cinema, everybody in the world deals with gender on some level. So you can always be like, well, that's a gay thing. I don't really care about it. But who can be like, I? it's a gender thing. I don't care about it. You know, of course, there's a lot of straight white guys who are not going to think about it at all. But there always seemed to be like a lot of potential for trans cinema. And there were in a certain way, some of the classics we all know that now seem deeply problematic, but that were crossover films. I don't just say to say Kiss of the Spider Woman or um, these kinds of uh, films that uh, could cross over and not be seen as queer cinema. But then there that was juxtaposed with just this. This is a trans film for the trans community. Um, and then just we've had radical shift in the last 10 years. It goes along with the idea of the trans tipping point in society in general. But most importantly, in cinema, the cinema has just become dramatically more sophisticated. And it comes at it from every angle possible. It just sometimes is specifically addressing uh, a trans themed, I don't know, condition or state of being. But most of the time, it is just a trans character that can come from any kind of filmmaking point of view. And there are just enormous numbers of entry points into the trans uh, genre. And so now we don't have this discussion as programmers. I think a lot of us who've done this for a while probably think in the back of our mind, oh my God, are we programming too much trans film? Is the gay and lesbian audience not going to be interested? But the films are simply demanding <laughs> um, because they're not similar in films and they're extremely sophisticated. And I just want to say as much as that, you know, I'm, I'll go into it later, some of my own films. But this year alone, like what we're looking at just in the last couple months is astounding already. Um, if you look at Sundance, the fact that they had two films about black trans sex workers 
And both of them sold to major commercial companies, right? One, one sold to Magnolia, one sold. And I'm so used to in my practice looking at whatever's the trans film in the program, I can go get it. <laughs> I can work on it because no one else is going to want it. And the fact that opening night of South by Southwest is trans themed and two major films out of Sundance, they're all selling commercially. Uh, Mutt, you know, the, 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 you've just got, um, a plethora of titles that seem commercial. And I think that they end up going to my original assertion in my mind, which is that ultimately trans-themed cinema is broader than gay and lesbian cinema because there are more entry points, I think, for uh, an overall audience. So I think it's it's super exciting. And obviously um, in that level of sophistication of how the uh, genre has changed, Chase's, you know, you have brought a, a, a whole sort of meta academic narrative to the to, uh, addressing to it that I think has always been present in trans cinema. There's always been a lot of academics involved um, and you've kind of just taken it to the next level. So that was my soapbox <laughs> and I'll get back on it later. But, you know, that so I think this is this is an exciting topic for an exciting time. Thank you, Jeffrey. Yeah, that that's totally what we're talking about here. So that was the perfect moment to to say that. Um, for just to kind of lay it out for our listeners, the the idea, like Jeffrey was saying, of traditional trans cinema, uh, a lot like traditional queer cinema, is about coming out, is about the process, um, is about the nuts and bolts of transition. It's like Jeffrey said, trans 101 stuff. And for those of us who live in this world, for those of us who live in this trans world, who live, who live in a queer and trans world, we already know that stuff. But back when that stuff was first coming out, in my opinion, it was really important because it was representation of some kind. And it was spreading the word about the existence of these types of um, lived experiences and different kinds of genders. And it certainly was impactful for me to see a lot of this stuff early on when I was questioning my gender and trying to figure things out. So it's not to say that films from that type of trans cinema are bad. There's no bad, well, sure, there's bad, but like, I'm not saying that they're bad as a general thing. I'm saying they served a particular purpose and we have been saturated with that. And now we have the freedom to move on to other things. And so that's kind of what the trans new wave is all about. And my friend, friend Jed Bell coined that term in 2010 when he saw my movie gender busters and i was like cool what's trans new wave and he just made it up right there um because he's a smart guy <laughs> he was basically like trans new wave cinema is films where we assume that the audience already has a trans 101 in their back pocket they don't need to be told this stuff they have that knowledge and therefore the characters on the screen whether it's a documentary or a narrative are able to talk about all the other parts of being alive, uh, being a human being, not just their transness. Um, and I think that those types of films are really exciting. And I've seen more and more of them happen over the years. Uh, in my opinion, the one exception is By Hook or By Crook. 
that was way before anything else that was already having this embodied trans ex existence, but not explicitly talking about it. Um, so that's one way uh, that the trans new wave films kind of work. Another way is, uh, so we use the term queering the gaze. And so I like to say transing the gaze. So trans new wave films have, are transing the gaze, meaning the people who are controlling the frame, the people who are making the film, controlling the focus of it are trans people. And so the audience sees things the way that the filmmaker is seeing things and they're seeing it through a trans lens. And that's awesome. Um, so those are kinds of, those are my thoughts on those things in addition to what Jeffrey said. And I'd love to hear what everyone thinks about that. And of course, Chase, obviously, too, <laughs> mostly. But I want other people to feel included as well. Is that an invitation? Should I hop in first? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so yeah, so many different sparks to pick up on. And I can talk a little bit about my early work as it relates to your articulation of these waves, because you know, I came up as Jeffrey has has outed me um, through academia. And in part of that study, I spent a lot of time thinking about and writing about AIDS activist cinemas coming out of the late 80s and early 90s. And one of the things that's so energizing to me about that moment in queer cinema history is that these films, whether they were activist on the ground verite portraits or more experimental works, were cinemas of urgency, right? They were made by people who were trying to translate urgent sociopolitical issues to their community first and then to a broader public, be it government orgs and or others in positions of power who were keeping life-saving technologies and initiatives and momentums away from queer and trans people. And the thing that I love about AIDS activist cinemas is that they are gritty and unapologetic and they are recorded by any means necessary with whatever people had. And that kind of impulse to make, regardless of who is allowing you to make things, is something that I hold and really began making films from a similar place, which is to say, with borrowed technology on credit cards and many favors from friends. And... I started making short format work because I didn't know what I was doing, first of all, to be very clear, and was figuring it out along the way, but also because I understood that there was a kind of consolidation of a trans narrative already in cinema around issues of transition and medicalization, as we've already talked about, and feeling really resistant to it and actually feeling repelled by the routine and recognizing all of the kinds of exclusions that take place when we chart a life into an arc of that kind. And so my film, I'm Yours, which is a short five minute piece that I made with Nina Arsenault, an extraordinary trans performance artist who um, is based in Toronto and Montreal. We, to make a very, you know, maybe a little bit longer of a story short, we were being interviewed by the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation on the radio about various trans goings on in the media. And we spent the entire interview doing a trans 101 with the radio host. And we left the engagement and were laughing in our frustration about how we didn't talk about anything actually related to what was going on in the news and did a lot of early, very basic lifting for both the host and the audience. And so I'm Yours came out of those frustrations and the film 
removes all of the questions from the frame and only offers answers. And what we hope is that the film requires a kind of reflection in the audience to think, huh, what does it mean that I already know all these questions? I don't need the questions. What does it mean that I can already anticipate the sort of routine? And I was at a festival in the UK with the film and it played in a shorts program. And I was approached by a very well-meaning cis woman in her sixties. And she looked at me and she said, thank you so much for that film. And I said, you're welcome. And she said, I've always wanted to know the answers to all of those questions. And it was this incredible moment for me to reflect on the power of this trans narrative, the power of documentary as a kind of truth telling apparatus. And it has inspired me to now make sure that every time I talk about the film to say things like we're lying, <laughs> that we're making up some of the answers in the context of that film precisely to draw your attention to your expectations. Um, and so all of my work, even from that early, very cheaply made experimental short form, uh, has been engaged with the problems of representation and the ways in which we put certain kinds of pressure on minoritized subjects to tell certain kinds of stories. That's so awesome. I remember seeing that film and programming that film forever ago. And I just, I love that, that you hearkened back to it uh, because when people first learn about you they're like oh cool and they only talk about the new stuff right now which is great and it's exciting and it's like feature language I've never been able to do that so you're awesome um but I love that it still comes back to the same basic stuff that you were starting to play with back then so it's really that's really great James usually at this point I always look to you and I'm like what's so tell some history man James is our resident uh film scholar and historian. I know that he knows a lot more than that, but there's trans themes throughout the last century of cinema in, in every culture. So I was wondering if you, if you want to look at it from a century long perspective, century and a half now, whatever it is. <laughs> and James, well, before you start, I'm going to out you as sending us a Bill Nichols article two minutes before we started recording. <laughs> and it really appeals to my documentary theory and formalist part. So very happy to jam out. You could, look um, at, you could look at what we call the earliest queer cinema and say it's actually trans cinema, you know, the actual earliest gay and lesbian cinema. So I think that those, those have been... It, intertwined throughout all of queer cinema history. Yeah, I mean, the first thing I was thinking of as Chase was talking about his journey into filmmaking is that, you know, the I think we sort of forget how much filmmaking shifted with the digital revolution, right? There was so much inability to even access equipment. You know, if you're going to shoot on Super 8 or 16 or whatever, it's an inordinately expensive. Uh, and to some degree, you know, filmmaking is, is an economic decision. And so, you know, you are blocked by the sort of financial wall um, but the digital revolution sort of changed that um, and it, where anybody could pick up a camera. And I, and, but it made me think um, just about the ability to tell stories really, really shifts in the early 2000s. And I think that leads to some, a bunch of like sort of clunky work as people begin to work through these kind of issues um, in, in, a, in a media format. And then I feel like now we, it, with, you know, a good 20 years of this sort of digital revolution, the stories are obviously going to evolve. And I think to, to, to our point of being here with Chase is to talk about sort of how this his films have kind of reshifted the conversation about what is a documentary and how is it made and what are the stories you tell. Um, and yeah, to your point, Jeffrey, you know, um, 
trans or non-binary characters are, are in cinema from the very early on. You know, we, we talk, we've talked previously about the, the role of the pansy. The pansy sort of comes out of vaudeville in the late 19th century and becomes a stock character. Um, you know, many films had pansies in them. There were these super flamboyant characters, but people always sort of forget that, and I can't, I'm not going to remember the name of the film, but it's from the early 1910, 1912, um, where you see the, what's thought to be the very first sort of trans representation character, um, who's really sort of gender non-conforming character in this one film. And so you're right, Jeffrey, like these sort of images have been around. Um, many of them were locked out and shut down when the code comes in in the 1930s, um, simply because, you know, <laughs> the moral majority did not want, you know, what would they consider aberrant sexualities depicted in film. And so that's where we see the sort of the, the hard stop, the pansy disappears, these sort of cross-dressing um, characters kind of disappear until like the 1950s, right? You know, some like it hot is probably thought of as like the emergence of sort of what we would think of as cross-dressing cinema, um, but for comic relief, right? Um, so yeah, I mean, that's sort of the two parts that I approach this is like setting aside the sort of the documentary form, but this way the storytelling and the image making has shifted over the past hundred years. And there always is good, like if, if for people who are trying to catch up on all this, there is already a seminal doc that we had the honor of working on, but everybody should have seen or hopefully goes and sees now Disclosure by Sam Fetter. Disclosure really goes through a hundred years <laughs> of trans imagery in cinema. And it really closely mirrors, at least in format and in a lot of spirit of the celluloid closet. So we can look at the and celluloid closet is an evolution of a hundred years of gay and lesbian cinema where we weren't, there was trans representation in that, but we weren't quite parsing it out. And Disclosure takes a hundred years of trans, of the, of the pain and agony and some joy <laughs> of trans cinema and really lays it out. So I think that would be very important for people to watch and it's available on Netflix. Yeah, and James, I think you're thinking of Judith of Bethulia, which Susan Stryker and Yance Ford, when they're thinking about the legacy of D.W. Griffith detail yeah. in Disclosure. And so many connections to be made across those texts. Exactly, yeah, that's exactly the film I was thinking of. <laughs> Kathleen, what about you? <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> you know, I'm just interested because, um, you know, with Framing Agnes, so you, it started as a short. And and maybe if you could kind of talk about a little bit about that genesis of that from short to feature, but also the short is really um, incredible in and of itself, right? And then the feature is as well. And the feature then feels quite different because it's expanded, you know, and you're dealing with a lot of the subjects of well, history and how do we look at history and then bringing it into the present. And so I think how you're framing framing um, things is so so intriguing and interesting in, in your films and sort of bringing those two elements together. Yeah, so, yeah. so happy to. And very related, actually, to the conversation we're having about the construction of early trans narratives. So Framing Agnes, the short film, is born of an archival discovery that I made with my friend of 20 plus years and collaborator Kristen Schiltz. We were in the archives of Harold Garfinkel, a sociologist who was working at what is now referred to as the UCLA Gender Clinic in the mid-century. He writes a very obscure book in which there is a chapter about a person who is pseudonymized as Agnes. 
The reason Agnes is understood and known is because she told a very particular version of her life history in order to gain access to the life-affirming services that she desired and required. And then she comes back many years after and tells the researchers that she lied to them in order to get what she needed. And so she emerges as this kind of iconic force in early trans um, theory uh, as someone who strategically manipulated a system that was designed to exclude her. And the thing that uh, Kristen and my archival find revealed was a number of other case studies alongside the case files of Agnes in a rusted old filing cabinet. Can't make it up. It's just true. It was rusted. It was shut. It was stuck. And it's why people didn't have access to it before. Sometimes it's that simple. Um, and so the short film imagines four of these uh, case files alongside Agnes. And Kathleen, I love that you've already drawn attention to the difference between the short and the feature because we made the short in late 2017, 2018. It emerged on the festival circuit in 2019. And one of the things that formally the film is trying to do is ask contemporary interlocutors, contemporary trans performers to walk toward these historical subjects and asks them to think about not only their relation to these historical subjects, but also what it means in the contemporary moment to be trying to think about history and archives in this way. And Inarguably, the feature sets up the same structure. We have expanded to six characters, historical subjects. We have upped our production value considerably, but at its foundation, the ask is very similar. But two very different films emerge from that place. And I would say that the reason for that is precisely the shifts in the sociopolitical context of transness in the media between the time of the short and the time of the feature. And the easiest way to recognize that shift is to note the ways in which the short film still relies on personal narrative as a way in which the contemporary actors are arguing for their rights and dignity. My name is this, I grew up in this place, I had these feelings, they required me to make some changes, I encountered these struggles, right? A very familiar trans narrative. And we emerged to shoot the feature and more than one interlocutor said, no more. I will not be trafficking in personal narrative as the way in which I do this work. And so if you're okay with that, if we ask a different set of questions, let's jam out and see what happens. And so what emerges in Framing Agnes, the feature is a conversation of a very different kind. And it's on account of a, a refusal, a refusal within the film and a refusal that is collaboratively determined where we as a group of trans creators are saying no more. What's possible if we turn our attention elsewhere? And so the film that we created emerged from that place. Great, thank you. Yeah. Oh, I was just gonna say a quick thing, uh, which is I forgot to mention when I, when I talk about traditional trans cinema, that there are still films that would be categorized under that, that are being made. Um, that I think from me personally, I think are still noteworthy because they come from other cultures and other places around the world. Um, and they're an opportunity for us to have a greater understanding of those specific challenges. So I just wanted to say that because that's like the little PS 
Um, also, uh, I mean, it's a film we've mentioned before, but I, I would call attention to My Emptiness and I by Adrian uh -huh. Silvestre, this because that film, while underneath it is young, a young, you know, person emerging into a trans identity, it comes from a different place where like they don't even really know that's what they're doing at the beginning, first of all. And it's a medicalized society that is also forcing this on them. So it turns that around, which is really provocative and interesting because I think this person doesn't really want to have to conform to a gender construct and the system is not allowing that and then of course it allows us to go that particular film does what we're talking about allows us to go into broader questions and really come becomes a question about dating and love and the difficult and the particulars of dating and love as a trans woman which you know we certainly have not Solved that is a very contemporary issue, but all all teenage movies are about dating, right? So, I think that's a perfect example of something that is bringing something very new to the traditional trans narrative, and also in that case, it's her story. She's right. She's the writer of the story, mm -hmm. so that that also you know completely changes it because it's not a subject of where somebody's, um, you know. <laughs> demanding answers of this as we've discussing she is providing her own story so that would be an example there too <laughs> yeah i agree um i was gonna say one other thing about this general topic before we move on to the second one um which i was gonna say later but it it came up organically here which is the idea of how there's been a prevalence and explosion of um films made about trans history. And I like to say trans history, um, H-I-R-S-T-O-R-Y, because it's neutral. Um, and I'm just curious, uh, Chase, where your interest in this particular um, investigation came from and your thoughts on the, the recent boom, I don't know a better word, but of a lot of looking back. And my sense is that uh, a lot of people think being trans is a new thing. And so this is an opportunity for people within and outside of the community to be like, oh, actually, this is not new. Um, and I think that's why, but also maybe it has to do with identity and um, having a sense of those who came before us. And anyway, what do you think? Yeah, and I'm happy to to start, but I'd be so curious for, you know, Jeffrey and James and Kathleen to chime in too, because I think from a programmatic perspective, there's some interesting insights to glean here. Well, I think you could put Framing Agnes and No Ordinary Man in the category of docs that are thinking about history. I also hope that they're understood as docs that are thinking about the future and actually deeply rooted in a kind of contemporary presentness. Um, I think that it is also related to what James was discussing around having access to the means of production. So what does it mean when more queer and trans makers can be at the helm of larger projects that are able to ask big, complicated questions. And one of the things that I think about often as it relates to my films is the 
presence of the cohort or presence of a kind of polyvocal commitment, which is to say we should never be presenting transness as singular and or articulated through the mouth or body or life of one particular person. And that is, of course, not my idea. You know, I think often about the early trans masculine docs that were formative for me, projects like Southern Comfort, you know, which emerged at the turn of the 2000s or projects like The Aggressives from a few years after that. Projects that are rigorously committed to representing or thinking with groups of people. And that for me is a question of history. Why is it that when we think about trans subjects in history, we think about those who have been separated from their communities and or isolated in some way by their treatment and or by their representation? And what does it mean to refuse that by creating a broader community group attention in the present, because I think that that then informs the ways in which we we come to know about transness or gender nonconformity moving forward. Um, but I also think that there's really interesting questions to be asked, and this is the work that I think we do with Jules Gill-Peterson in particular in Framing Agnes around what's at stake when we try to claim people from history as part of our shared worlds or our communities? And what are the pitfalls when we look back even at someone like Billy Tipton and say, ah, Billy Tipton, a trans man, Billy Tipton, someone who we can see a trans masculine history. And of course we don't know. And I'm not afraid of that not knowing. I think that there's a lot of power and beauty in not knowing and I am very happy to be wrong. And the way in which I sort of satisfy within myself and or I suppose justify, let's say justify and not satisfy, the desire to look back is precisely to not say that we have to be right, but to ask a different set of questions, which is what's at stake? What's at stake for us in the contemporary moment? What's at stake when we think historically and what can be sort of gleaned from a looking back at history where we understand history is a set of stories that have been created and sustained by people in positions of power and that we have uh, an incredible amount of work to do in unsettling the ease with which we come to remember trans life. Yeah, and if I can jump in real quick here too, because this we've we've kind of touched on this a few times in other podcasts, and I try to and I have this conversation with my students all the time too about you know being wary of projecting a contemporary sense of identity on historical figures, and because it's much more complicated. Like we can't we use different like. You know, and I struggle to when I teach early queer film where you like even the wording is is very different. You know, when you when you look at what we think of as early trans films, you're like, well, they're it's the 1960s, and so we didn't have terminology. They were considered crossdressers, or they were like the the, the language just wasn't there. Um, <clears throat> but we can, I think, to your point, Jason, to the the work you make, is that these stories aren't there. Like, you know, you have to dig and you have to find them because they weren't told. And so we understand the sort of psychology of wanting to look back and being like, yes, that's a queer person in 1935 doing queer stuff. And we know those people existed, but there's no visual memory, I guess. So so that's sort of why I, I'm fascinated by your film, but also the um, the Bill Nichol art, Nichols article that I sent at the very last minute. Which um, and so it's an essay called "Reenactment in the Phantasmatic Subject." But one of the ideas Bill Nichols talks about is how reenactment sort of functions as a way of manifesting what we'd think of as like a ghost in the texts, right? You know, to, to your own research, 
Chase, right? When you're discovering these files, these people existed, but they're also sort of ephemeral. They're, we don't know them. They're kind of, they're ghosts. And so I love your film that, that you try and manifest this and sort of in a different way, right? You're not like literal reenactments, like as to your point, you're like, we don't want to do that. We want to do something else. Um, and I think that's just really fascinating about the way you sort of shifted the documentary form away from what we tend to think about it. Yeah, thanks. And I mean, you know, I'm very suspicious of reenactment as a cinematic technique. And I appreciate the work that Bill Nichols has done in the establishment of a kind of documentary theoretical apparatus. And also, I think that reenactment is a failure. Like reenactment is only ever a citation. And so instead of trying to do it better or get it right, what if we actually take that failure seriously? And so in the context of No Ordinary Man, when we're asking transmasculine talent to walk towards sides that have been created in pursuit of a never-to-be-made fictional film about the life of Billy Tipton, we are never imagining that they are anyone other than themselves. And so what that means is those who are walking toward our film are coming as the people they are to comment on what's at stake in the creation of this story, in the pursuit of this history, et cetera. And in the context of Framing Agnes, where, as I mentioned, our contemporary collaborators are walking toward these historical subjects, one of the things that happens by virtue of the formal choices being made, I would say, this is my own opinion of my own film, is, is that a third thing appears. It is not Angelica Ross. It is not Georgia. It is this third space of Angelica Ross as Georgia in a contemporary moment of improvisation that is on stage with me, who is also being someone else, right? Like I could keep going, but I don't want to dizzy the conversation. That produces something else that is not reenactment, in my opinion, and is a kind of deeply trans embodied space that hopefully allows us to hang in different time periods simultaneously. I just want to say, add to why all. So we're definitely a bunch of people who can go into, you know, incredible intellectual spirals on these topics. But it's I, I just want to bring it back for for some listeners to remember what a incredibly difficult historical time we're actually in, where this isn't just a it isn't just an academic conversation because we've actually never seen a time where there is such a legal and political onslaught on trans people, which obviously has to do with this emerging visibility and freaking people out. <laughs> They're like, wait, I didn't know all of this existed. Let's legislate against it, right? And medicalize and remedicalize it and detransition people. Um, so there's forced detransitioning happening in that bill in Tennessee. I never even heard of such a thing until the other day. Um, so, you know, obviously we're in a also very dangerous point of view and from a cinematic point of view, which is covered so well in Disclosure, when when I'm when I think about the history of trans cinema, which is where I was coming into this because of Chase's question, I think about so many of the periods of time where we presented a trans piece and it was celebrated at the time and now it looks hideously problematic, right? <laughs> And it usually is from a question of authenticity. So like I noted down a couple of the films that I remember from growing up uh, that and over, you know, growing up over many years um, 
that were watersheds, The Crying Game, Boys Don't Cry, Trans America, all of those. Well, I had like both visceral discomfort with it when it was happening, but then I also thought they were great movies, right? Um, Crying Game, I was really uncomfortable. I was like, that was a fucking, <laughs> I felt jumped, right? And then Boys Don't Cry, I felt suicidal. <laughs> but, you know, Trans America is the most interesting for me of those, actually, because Trans America, I loved it. And I thought it was, I thought it was absolutely provocative and groundbreaking and spun storytelling and all this kind of stuff. And now the fact that the cisgender female playing the trans woman, you know, seems so outdated and ridiculous and so part of the conversation that we are still having around this thing that I always hearken back to is why is it important that gay men play gay roles and why is any of the where it seems more apparent with trans with, with trans cinema um i'm gonna be super geeky here and say i've been finally found that quote i've been thinking about for this entire time where uh adrian rich says writes powerfully <laughs> of the psychic disequilibrium oh i can't even say that word disequilibrium i can't say it uh, that occurs when people don't see their are uh, their own identities reflected in the language of others as if you looked into the mirror and saw nothing. So basically why trans and queer cinema is so important to me is I had this experience always of looking at the screen and not seeing myself. Uh, the idea that I would look at it and feel like I saw nothing, I did not exist. And this seems to me at the central issue of especially trans cinema, because even when you're portraying it, there are no trans people involved. There are no trans people on screen. And I think we are getting to the place where is authenticity really the answer? A lot of people will bristle at that. But for now in trans cinema, we've demanded authenticity of the images above everything else. At some point, people will start fighting back and say, but it is fiction. <laughs> it is acting, all of that. But I think that's where it really intersects with the overall idea of gay and lesbian cinema is how are you bringing authenticity on screen? And uh, I, I want to jump in here because I think um, Sam brought up a really good film um, by Hooker by Crook. Um, that came out um, in the early 2000s. And it was one of the first that was, first of all, by trans people, by For and About, um, by Silas, Silas Howard and Steakhouse, you know, and it was about um, mental illness, but it was also about trans community. And it was about, you know, so many things as a narrative. Um, and it was just such an important film First of all, in the festival circuit, it played all the queer festivals around. Um, but it was also uh, looking at, like, just it was in the hands of trans people. It was made by trans people, and I think that that really made a difference um, in terms of in terms of sort of what came after. I mean, Chase, were you? Um, I'd love to know, like, were you influenced by that film? Like, what you know, sort of, yeah. Just, um, when you saw it, yeah, just if you, I don't know if you wanted to kind of jump in here a little bit. Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, 
that film is taken up, I think, as a part of many of the early films that are theorized uh, not only about trans representation by trans makers, but also related to what I was saying around cohort approaches to trans life. So someone like Jack Halberstam is writing about by hook or by crook at the same time as he's writing about Southern comfort as examples of films where you are never presented a trans person or a gender non-conforming person or a non-binary person in isolation. They are always mirrored by a friend or a family member or a lover to whom they can connect about their life in a very particular way. Um, you know, Jeffrey, I'm really compelled by your uh, list of mainstream narrative trans representation and the inclusion of Boys Don't Cry. And I will out myself as having just um, written a book with my friend and collaborator, Morgan M. Page for the Queer Film Classics series on the film, precisely because it is it remains such a hot button and contentious film and legacy. But it is a film that is far more trans than it is understood to be. It is a film that is made by someone who now identifies as non-binary. It is a film that was supported by a number of trans activists and artists in very particular ways. Did it have egregious violence that many critique? Absolutely. Is it full of problems? To be sure. Should it be erased from the conversation and our understanding of trans representation? Absolutely not. And I think it exists precisely for that reason. And I'm really energized to try and think with it. And, you know, people often talk about Paris's burning as another example of a kind of outsider in representation of trans life. And do I think Paris is Burning would have been a very different film had it been made by a trans-identified person of the world that was being represented? Without question. But it also has an opportunity for us to think about the politics and stakes of authorship, to think about who gets to tell what kinds of stories about whom, and then how those films circulate. And so By Hook or By Crook is one example, of course, but it's sort of baked into a world of representation in the late 90s and early 2000s, where I think a lot of these debates are consolidating. And a lot of it comes down to who is making what kinds of stories about whom and who is benefiting from the representation. And so what we're trying to do in Framing Agnes, and I think also in some of my other projects, is to try to take seriously the limits uh, the limits of collaboration as well. So to say that it's all well and good that we want to democratize this platform, but ultimately someone does benefit more than others in the making of this work. And someone is held as more visible and or more in control. And, you know, Sam, when you sent that message earlier on before we recorded, you 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 used the word auteur to talk about a cinematic style. But the auteur by virtue of its definition, is a singular subject, right, to whom all of this meaning gets attached. And it's like, how can we move away from that? How can we actually think much more collectively and collaboratively about um, these kinds of these kinds of films? Yeah, and I just want to say, you know, because I don't want us to get lost in pure authenticity argument to where we I, I just know as a programmer and as a viewer of film, I don't want to tell non-trans people they can't make trans film. <laughs> That's not something I'm looking forward to. I mean, I um, so it becomes such a difficult conversation. And it's why I say we've arrived at the place where I'm so I feel so fortunate that we have many choices, right? So we don't have to put individual such individual 
weight on each film, right? I In my lineup, I have many trans theme films that are by trans people and many that are not. And uh, they are, they luckily they now can fit into different programming slots. Does that make sense? Um, I don't think anybody can jump in here and say, you know, for now you don't want to see trans film made by non-trans uh, people. But I have this, we've had this conversation with gay actors, right? Like, it's like, we prefer it if it's a gay, it's it's better when it's a gay actor, but it doesn't mean like we have to discount it. Uh, or get rid of it. I was gonna. I was gonna say. I think there's something to be said for um, not making strict rules yeah. um, and considering the nuance of each project and choice. Um, we've tried. I, I've I've been doing programming for a while now, and sometimes we're like we're making a rule. Yeah. <laughs> and then it's like well, there's this and there's that and what about that? And it it kind of just reminds me of how we can all just be a little more informed and make a decision based on particular things rather than a blanket rule. Um, so I just wanted to say that. Oh. I was just going to say, have you ever tried to really pay attention to the rules of representation though, because they're all, to your point, Sam, failed pursuits. In okay, what world are you ever going to cast someone who is directly related to and or similar to the fictionalized right. narrative on the page? It's why I'm far more interested in documentary, to be frank, to be like thinking clearly and explicitly with who people are. But I just find to your to your to your earlier point, it's a failed mission and we actually need to ask a different set of questions about what is at stake when certain kinds of people emerge on screen. Yeah. I would also say auteur, let's make a new word, um, collective auteur. How's that? Maybe? I don't know. I just, I, I want to celebrate what you're doing and I want to celebrate what you're doing in a way that works with what you're doing. <laughs> no, it's a, it's a really tricky thing. And it's something that yeah. I think about all the time. So I'm down to think with you, regardless of whether or not we, we find a name for it, because yeah. you know we're in an industry that likes to separate mm, authors from projects, right? Likes to separate directors from work and it reproduces all of the same problems of power. And so how do we unsettle those terms? I certainly don't have the answer, but I'm genuinely and sincerely very interested in continuing to think about it here and what's, elsewhere. <laughs> what's really sort of fascinating, and I, I, and I see this um, as I teach, you know, kids in film school, um, the approach is just, uh, and teaching a queer film history class to not everybody in the class was queer, but there was a much greater amount of respect, like, like you know, the, the straight cis kid in who was wanted to take my queer film class, he there's like there's an acknowledgement of like that's not my story to tell. Like, you know, the trans kids in my class are gonna he's like they can that's their story. And it, and it's this sort of generational shift where there's just like an accept that like, no, no, that's not my story to tell. That's their story. And and it's it's this sort of shift in respect for each other. Like, I don't know, when I don't know if this heralds like a shift, because these are 19, 20 year olds who will ultimately go into the industry maybe and probably, you know, get chewed up because of the way the industry functions but at the moment now there's there's i don't know this optimism about 
authentic about the stories that they're telling, which I find kind of fascinating, you know, being a cynical 50 something person. I think that the problem here is that like, for sure, without a doubt, you know, the you do you generations coming up now are incredibly enlightened and fantastic. I think that it's just, it is really hard to also step back and remember what is going on politically in the country and what is going on, you know, in terms of real violence and anger in a way that we've never seen before. I know these things are somewhat inevitable if once you, that backlashes are inevitable, but they are also dizzyingly dangerous. It's amazing that the most fascistic impulses in America are coming out around transness right now, right? It's like America always has to have something to be fascistic about. <laughs> this is the one now. What's going on in Florida? What's, you know, banning drag, banning drag. Where are they coming up with this is the problem in, in, in a society as fucked up and complex and capitalistically oppressive as this, like drag? <laughs> so... I think that's why I'm trying to look. I can't really understand it. I don't know why people are so freaked out by gender, but they clearly are. <laughs> and I think that that's why I always go back into why the, I think trans cinema must be the most important to me personally is really all these things come down to sexism and gender bias, right? It all It always comes down to that. Patriarchal power. And I think trans cinema is the best way to look at that because it is the most interestingly graying of that topic. Um, and the, the characters are inherently revolutionary against gender bias. Um, so and I mean, there's an amazing amount of trans cinema happening right now. I mean, I've been like watching films for translation and you know like it's incredible the diversity in in terms of the subject matter like things like kokomo city and and then of course a, a documentary um and then a, something you said last night which is just a narrative about a family and and the main trans character is, is is trans and that and they're part of the family and the dynamics of the it's really more about the dynamics of the family and you know i just think and then, of course, what Jeffrey mentioned before, my emptiness and I, which was a completely different kind of narrative, um, you know, out of Spain. And, you know, and I just think, like, people are making work that is nuanced and um, full characters, and they're, they're experimenting with medium, and, and that brings us back to Chase, your work, which experiments with the medium of documentary. Um, and and I, I just, anyway, I just wanna say, I love that. <laughs> I love that about your film. Oh, thanks. I mean, one of the things that I am admittedly obsessed about is the ways in which documentary can instruct us as to how to feel about certain kinds of minoritized subjects. It's related to our initial conversation about trans narratives, right? What are the expectations of documentary as a form? How, what kind of violence does documentary do in positioning people as experts of their own experience and representing them in particular ways? And 
you know, the inclusions of, of people like Jules Gill-Peterson in the context of framing Agnes, Jules, an extraordinary trans historian and cultural commentator, comes in as our, quote, positioned expert subject to critique the film as the film is unfolding, to actually draw our attention to the problems of representation that are taking place on screen at the same time. And it's through Jules that we get to say that the debate right now about trans kids is not about transness and actually not about kids. It's about racism and authoritarianism and the ri rise of the religious right. And it's about all of these other socio-political forces and the ways in which transness and trans people bear the burden of these debates. And it would be easy to position that kind of critique in a more traditional talking heads journalistic documentary, but we would therefore be reproducing some of the same problems. And so to think critically about documentary and to get more creative and experimental is one of the ways in which I think we, and I, the we of this statement is the we of that film, you know, are trying to, to trouble the terms, trouble the terms of how we come to know about and consider these issues. And that is the perfect segue into topic number two. We did it. Um, this is a fascinating conversation that I'm sure could go on for a super long time. Um, but uh, I think we should move into uh, talking about the documentary form and how it's evolving and use that as our as our wrap up. And I think we've already done a lot of talking about that. Um, but I just wanted to kind of focus our attention. And the idea um the ideas that I have are, um, I love how, let's see, Chase and the collective are reinventing and queering the whole genre of documentary by subverting the gaze and questioning the authority of the director and the makers by having cameras on the crew in the middle of an interview, just like he was saying, um, and having dialogue back and forth that is um kind of vulnerable i think you know the director is traditionally like a powerful one and it's like okay well let's be let's just do something totally different and turn the camera on you and actually have a conversation here um and so it's turning it on its head that the director is the only expert um and uh I wrote polyvocal. Oh yeah, that's such a cool word. Yeah, so having having the group of people thinking about these things together. Uh, the second thing I, I was thinking about this evolution is um, having the trans actors playing these historical figures and also being themselves and asking those questions um, in a contemporary context and, you know, that whole side of it. I haven't seen that before. Um, and the third thing is elements of um, narrative filmmaking mixed with documentary, which I've seen here and there, but I think using that in this particular way, um, specifically in the like television interview kind of setup, um, just felt, brilliant and refreshing. So those are my thoughts 
on the evolution of documentary form, which clearly is a short topic that we can tackle efficiently. Um, I just love how we get to see you, Chase, deeply and your team, deeply examining topics around this representation on screen. Um, All in our three-minute wrap-up. Here I go. About that. How did you come up with <laughs> No, this? thank you for those um, very kind comments. I will say no that problem. the methods are born out of encountering problems and roadblocks, which is to say, if I take seriously the, my charges against documentary as a form, how do I continue my career as a documentary filmmaker? <laughs> and so I think Framing Agnes is a series of experiments that is trying to think out loud about the politics of authority, but is also excited by the tools offered to us by narrative cinema and also trying to think about what that can give us in a nonfiction space. So one of the very rare moments in all of Agnes where we are not in an explicitly documentary experimental genre snapping form is a moment of reprieve where we're with Angelica Ross as Georgia in a church and Brian Michael Smith makes our extraordinary celeb trans cameo appearance. We are only with music, nobody is speaking. And at the end of that scene, Jules Gill Peterson rips us out of the moment to say, be careful why you're feeling the way you're feeling. And what she's doing is and granted, of course, we we found a way to do this in the edit, but what she's doing is reminding us of the power of cinema to instruct us about how we are supposed to feel. And that is a deeply narrative approach. And so I am energized by the kind of collision of these worlds. And it requires a willingness to get on set and to follow the flow of what's happening with collaborators and is a very stressful thing for producers to consider. It is an impossible thing for funders to consider. Funders do not like it when you say, I'm going to make a film that is going to emerge based on a set of rules and containers that I build that people will willingly move toward and inhabit. But I think it is a way to try to unlock the rhythms of documentary and the way that the documentary form actually just becomes a different version of narrative cinema by virtue of the fact that we take you on a journey move you through some form of catharsis and leave you in some place of resolve. So much is lost when we adhere to those cycles. And so I am very careful of the moments within myself as someone who grew up loving movies and loving catharsis and loving feeling my feelings to, to trouble at every turn and to think, well, if I said no to that, what else might be possible? And it's an imperfect plan that traps you and me in the film at every turn, but to try and take those traps and think of them as opportunities. Yeah, and I just wanted to jump in real quick because I think you made some really interesting comments, especially we don't really sort of, and we don't have the time, but to dissect the form. And when we think about the documentary as this arbiter of truth, right? I'm telling this story and it is true because it's a documentary and 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 sort of alighting all these concepts of construction. Like, you know, I decide to do this. I decide to shoot, show that. And, and, and it becomes the position of the filmmaker and their statement, their argument, so to speak. And to kind of break that open and say, you know, this is, there are other ways to do this. <laughs> um, it's sort of mind shifting because, you know, when you think about documentary, I'm going to make this, you know, Errol Morris or, you know, Frederick Wiseman, like these are what we think about. Like, 
you know, are you verite or are you, you know, you talking head, whatever, what kind of documentary do you want to make? There's six of them. There's pick one, pick one style you're going to use. Um, and to take a little mishmash of a bunch of those and kind of break it open is really fascinating because it's it just, it makes you rethink the form, which I think is what Frame Agnes does. It's like, it's, it's framing, uh, it's giving us a new frame to sort of think about documentary. I mean, especially in this time when we're moving at least quickly and strongly out of Europe and other where the narrative and the documentary are blending and so much of docu documentary is told by real footage, but then edited and constructed just like a narrative film. And those lines, it's important to remember, I think what you're saying that's really important, Chase, is to remember the kind of power in that and inherent danger. I just really, I watched a film on a jury at the Thessaloniki Doc Festival last week, and it was about a climate refugee, a young woman, a young girl in Bangladesh. And the entire time, I thought it was a follow documentary where we were really watching this girl whose town was rain was flooded out and she went into the city and she was starving and she was sick and she was digging through the trash. And the entire time I was furiously angry because I was like, turn the fucking camera off and take her to the hospital. You know, stop watching her suffer on the street. And there were times that she seemed like she was drowning and all of it. And then it got to the end of the film and suddenly she had joined forces with this transgender theater troupe okay, in the streets of some weird town in Bangladesh. <laughs> and they're performing it, and all of a sudden, a camera falls out, pulls out, and you realize they're performing her story, this trans theater troupe. And I was like, wait a minute, was that all recreated? I had no idea. I would, the entire time, I thought it was beautiful. I was stunned. And then I realized in the last five minutes, through some manipulation, that it had, a, yes, it was based on her story, but it was all reconstructed i felt so violated <laughs> because it had like made you know made me feel that i was seeing something i'd never seen before and that i was learning something about climate refugees i really had the sense i had learned something about climate refugees <laughs> and then also and i would say you did <laughs> but i learned that the the what i also thought was that it was incredibly unethical because at some point, the camera is not helping the person, you know, the question is, is the camera helping the subject, right? So I was sitting there saying, she's going to die while they're filming her, <laughs> you know? Um, I, I knew that wouldn't actually happen. But I kept, I kept saying, this is unethical. Turn the camera off and actually help the person. So, yeah, it's really important to remember that power that you're talking about. I just want to throw one more film out there and then we can head towards the wrap up. But does anyone remember a film called Bontoc Eulogy um, by Martin Fuentes? He's a Filipino-American filmmaker and he reconstructs uh, part of the Columbus Exposition um, where supposedly this tribe from the deep jungle of the Philippines is transposed and, and <clears throat> has to perform for audiences as, as part of the World Expo. And much of it was fake. And he was selling it and promoting it as just sort of the real doc, like, oh, this is my grandfather. And it caused this huge controversy because people were like, and he, and he, I mean, he ultimately owns up and says, no, it's fake. You all fell for it because it was about colonization. And, and, you know, you want to believe this story. You want to believe that this happened. Um, 
but yeah, it's a really fascinating sort of study if you look it up because it still it makes people angry to this day who felt they were duped into believing the story. This is the next episode because there's so much to talk about. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> there certainly is. Wow. I could go on for days. <laughs> I have dogs barking. <laughs> I have a cat yelling. Let's do you know, it. We can do I it got all day. snacks. Let's go. Um, just kidding. Yeah. Um, Kathleen, did you have anything you want to jump in about here? No. Okay. Um, well, I just wanted to ask one one more question, and then I promise I will let you all go about your day, which is. What are you doing right now? I mean, not at this moment. At this moment, you're talking to some really cool people. But like, what are you working on? These I'm days? in development on a whole bunch of new projects and ideas. And having spent the better part of this past year and a bit on tour with Agnes, it feels very exciting to be encountering a whole set of new problems. Um, one thing that I am doing is I am soon to be in production on a feature with the National Film Board of Canada on a project with decolonial writer and theorist Julieta Singh, where we are attempting to tell 140 years of Canadian history through the story of a single brick and mortar structure, a single house. So for all the ways in which Agnes is switching historical time periods through character, uh, we are investing in architecture and space as one of the ways in which to do that kind of storytelling. I think I speak for everyone when I say I'm very excited to see it. <laughs> no pressure. Well, no pressure. <laughs> yeah. Um, is there anything else anyone wanted to say before we say a massive thank you? And we'll we'll schedule our part two soon. Just kidding. Thanks for inviting me into the conversation. Thank you so much for being here. This was awesome. And like I said, we could talk forever, but I think. I think we covered some some really good ground and I'm very excited for people to take a listen to this and if they haven't seen your films check them out and uh yeah thank you so much everybody thank you thanks Faith. thanks everyone thanks everyone <laughs>